Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Chips, the soccer podcast from Vice Sports. My name, as always, is Aaron Gordon. I'm a staff writer here at Vice, and joining me on the line is Will McGee in London. Will, how are you doing? Uh, yeah, doing doing fine, thanks, mate. Good. How's the weather there? It's, it's really nice here. It's like the first like day of spring, kind of. Oh, it's been lovely the last few days. It's, it's getting a little bit more overcast today, but the last few days it's been very much sort of hanging about in the park, having a few tins, weather. It's been good weather, yeah, nice. Very good. So this week, there really isn't a ton... I mean, Champions League st- is starting up again this week, but there's really... Unless we wanted to, I don't know, give our predictions or something like that, there's really not that much to talk about other than that. It'll be fun, and I look forward to watching it. So we thought we would talk about something a little different this week, about... Uh, a, a shifting tide, if you will, in the in the Premier League, where three clubs look like they're going to be getting new or highly renovated stadiums, and kind of what that means for the fan relationship with these clubs. Because uh, there's a lot of interesting goings on here, and, it, and it's, I, I feel like it's happened kind of so gradually that it's mostly getting ignored. Uh, is that fair to say, or is that mostly just the American perception of it, Will? Uh, no, I would say I would say it's uh, got a fair amount of traction here in terms of coverage, but it's one of those things that is kind of low-level, under the radar, you know, in terms of... Because we're in the middle of a Premier League season, obviously all the narratives of the actual football are kind of taking precedence at the moment. I imagine in summer, when the, these moves start to, you know, either, like... But, you know, become an imminent reality or pick up momentum, it will be more sort of at the forefront of people's minds here. Yeah, so so the basic outline is obviously Liverpool completed their uh, Anfield renovations recently. It's, it's done, right? Like, they're not doing any more additions? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Right. Okay, so Liverpool recently completed their renovations, but there are three more teams either currently undergoing or about to... Uh, undergo their own stadium renovations or construction. Uh, so obviously the the one underway is the Spurs Stadium, uh, which you can kind of see off in the corner when they're when they play a match at White Hart Lane. You can see like all the construction cranes and stuff. Uh, and they're going to have to play next year at Wembley to make way for some construction that would prohibit playing at White Hart Lane. Is that right, Will? Uh, well, the new place isn't White Hart Lane. It's uh a site nearby 
which obviously is being like completely- it's like right adjacent to it though right and they can't and they need to tear down a portion of white hart lane in order to complete the new stadium so they have to relocate for a year that was my understanding yeah sure i mean yeah it's it, it it's a it's basically an adjacent plot but it, you know right. it's it, it's technically its own kind of new stadium i guess but yeah that's that's what's going on with them yeah Okay, and that's th- that's quite an expensive price. Something like eight hundred million pounds, last I heard. Uh, but anyway, so that so that's one. Uh, Chelsea is going to renovate Stamford Bridge for approximately three hundred million pounds, which, as far as I can tell, mostly involves covering it with what looks like lots of very large matchsticks. Uh, it's it's a very bizarre uh, kind of renovation and design, but. Uh, I don't know. It, it, uh, the Guardian compared it to looking like the Beijing's Bird Nest Stadium, which... Oh, no, I'm sorry. It doesn't say it looks like it. It's just done by the same architecture firm. Anyways, so that's that's two, and they're going to expand the seating a little bit, add corporate seating, you know, all the, all, the, all the stuff you get from stadium renovations. And then the third is Everton planning a new 300 million pound stadium. Uh... Uh, th- that's going to be brand new as well. So those are kind of the major projects going on. And so I guess what I wanted to ask you, Will, is because in America we're quite used to this, this whole stadium construction thing, teams moving from old grounds to new grounds. Uh, pretty much every professional team in the United States has moved within the last 30 years. There are only a few exceptions. So... My question to you is, since we're quite used to it, what's the reaction like in the UK? What are fan? What do fans think of this trend? Um, well, I think people are usually tentatively optimistic about having a new stadium uh, before it's built, but then there, ha- there has there is certainly a trend of people then sort of retrospectively, uh, firstly being very nostalgic for the old stadium, which is you know understandable and fair enough, but also potentially comparing the new stadium negatively to the old one. And I guess that's kind of the key thing is that, you know, I think in the context of some kind of recent stadium redevelopment, both in the Premier League and in, you know, the lower leagues as well, or the kind of general direction in which stadiums seem to be moving, uh, I think a lot of people are starting to feel a little bit like stadium redevelopment or, you know, getting a new stadium, state-of-the-art stadium, can be a bit of a double-edged sword. So I think there's excitement initially and then potentially quite a lot of trepidation after that, actually. I think there are a couple of elements at work here. One is obviously the incredibly negative move, I think, by by all accounts, of West Ham to the Olympic Stadium. It sounds like no nobody is happy with that one, except maybe the club because they're making more money. But the fans don't seem to enjoy it very much. The press pretty much bitch about it every single home match uh, because they're so far from the field. And it just sounds like a generally negative thing. Obviously, Arsenal fans and away fans, too, uh, incessantly complain about ticket prices at the Emirates. Uh, so it seems like they're, the fans are pretty vocal once the move happens about uh, the negative ramifications of it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I mean, I actually wrote a piece on the London Stadium, uh, you know, at probably a couple of months ago, where I went and spoke to some West Ham fans about how they actually perceived... Um, perceive the new stadium and how they're getting on there because obviously as you say there's been a huge amount of negative press about it and I think a lot of journalists have kind of been very very against it um, they were they were more optimistic than I thought that they would be even though all of them had you know complaints but um, yeah I mean I suppose basically fundamentally with all of these kind of these issues you have to kind of ask who it benefits in terms of 
does it benefit the fans or just does it basically only benefit the club hierarchy? And, uh, you know, there's kind of an argument for both in every single case. But certainly with the London, the London Stadium move, a thing that came across to me was that there are just a certain portion of West Ham's fan, be- fan base, quite a sort of considerable portion, I think, who are basically quite heartbroken by that move. You know, it was a... I mean, that's kind of a, spe- a, a special case in that they've been moved to a different area. You know, they've moved away from Upton Park, which is a, you know, a part of East London, to Stratford, which is a, you know, a kind of completely different area in East London. Uh, they have very different cultures. There are very different uh, kind of amenities. And, you know, the, basically Stratford doesn't have quite as much by way of, you know, I suppose small businesses and pubs and, rest- you know, like cafes and restaurants and stuff like that. So there are a lot of complaints about that. But basically, I suppose the irreparable uh, issue there is that there are a portion of the West Ham fan base, you know, mainly guys who've been going for 50 years for whom West Ham was very much a kind of a working class um, East London football club. Those people, I think, have been uh, very much sort of alienated and fundamentally alienated in a way that can't be kind of undone by the move to Stratford to a, to a much kind of shinier, more corporate stadium. Obviously, West Ham would argue, you know, that's given them an opportunity to redevelop their corporate section and that's been gi- given them an opportunity to, you know, increase matchday revenues. But I suppose the two issues with that are, one, you know, making a football club all about corporate revenue is in many ways what ruins it for, the, you know, the majority of match-going fans. And secondly, you know, in the modern era when... Uh, revenue is less and less about what you take on the gate and more and more about television sort of television income it's it's arguable i suppose now we're getting to the point with the television income where it's so big that it's arguable that increasing your capacity is sort of a marginal gain that if it really alienates a lot of your fan base potentially isn't worth making I think the alienation of the fan base question is a good one um, and kind of like unanswerable in advance. It's mostly something you have to find out if it happens afterwards, which is yeah. obviously kind of a perilous thing for the owners to, to you know contemplate as they do it. But there's, I think we've experienced something a little different in the U.S., which I'm honestly very worried is going to happen uh, to the EPL as more teams get new stadiums, which is we've seen this widespread homogeneity of the game day experience which is to say that as every team has gotten a new stadium and all the stadiums are basically the same with minor tweaks to give them quote-unquote character or you know a unique feel but really they're all they're all modeled the same way off of these very successful um prototypes like basically in every sport there was one stadium that came along that was heralded as the new mold and then every stadium after that copied it in baseball it was camden yards in baltimore in football it was a lot of the new stadiums that were built around the turn of the 21st century and all of them now feel exactly the same like you go to a game or you watch one on tv and you can't really tell which ballpark you're at just by looking at it like you really have to know the stadium intimately to be able to be like oh yeah that's you know so and so park because x y and z um and it's and that's been a really i mean like it's been a, i think it's been a really negative move for american sports because all of a sudden every game feels exactly the same because the stadium looks the same the fans act the same as a result and there's really no defining character to differentiate them and i i think 
that description of American sports is largely reflected by the by the buildings they're in. And there's like a lot of like architectural theory that kind of like supports this notion that people behave a certain way based on the architecture dictates they behave. And I think it's going to be interesting and simultaneously worrying to see if EPL fans kind of adapt that kind of follow the same trajectory as their new stadiums or their heavily renovated ones start to resemble one another. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. And I think as as in many things in this country, um, in terms of that kind of corporate culture, I think we usually follow America. So I think in that sense, it's quite likely that you'll see architects like adopting what are essentially quite kind of American fashions in the sense of like what you've just described, you know, identical stadiums, I guess. Uh, and projecting that onto the Premier League. I suppose the difficulty is that, you know, the match day experience and, and how how to make that successful is very different from the perspective of, of a club hierarchy and their fans. You know, the club hierarchy want people to come in, have comfortable amenities, you know, basically spend quite a lot of their money on food and drink, go to their seat, you know, cause as little fuss as possible and then go home on on the sort of final whistle. And uh, and while that might be a good corporate experience, it's like it's like the Disneyland model. Like yeah. they want you to come in, empty your pockets, and leave. Yeah, and while that might be a good corporate experience in terms of a completely different sort of entertainment, you know, football in in uh, in England and in Britain is so fundamentally sort of tied up with community and locality and fans themselves, which we'll come back onto later. That. Um, yeah, you know, the the, the, the the average fan's idea of what a good day out of the football is is completely different. You know, people want, you know, personality. They want character in their match day. They, you know, preferably it's, you know, kind of within the realms of reasonability. It's quite chaotic. It's quite sort of fun. And it's meant to have that slight anarchic edge. And, you know, mainly the things that, you know, the sort of stadiums that have that anarchic edge are older stadiums, you know, stadiums that have something about them in terms of history and heritage. And although, you know, clubs will fairly say for us to be financially successful, we have to keep, you know, progressing and moving forward and updating ourselves. At the same time, I think that's possibly why, like I personally, and I think a lot of other people would prefer to see people uh, renovate and redevelop their stadiums, you know, their their existing stadiums, that is, that already have, you know, that kind of atmosphere, uh, than we'd rather see that than people move to completely new... um, new grounds because that i mean you know you can never you can never sort of predict or foretell how a new ground is going to you know appeal to people and and actually how a fan base is going to adapt to a new ground i mean even with the emirates which for a while was sort of heralded as you know an incredibly successful stadium transferal or move you know it's arguable that a lot of the you know kind of a lot of the discontent amongst fan, Arsenal fans at the moment is basically down to their surroundings and the fact that not only has you know the last, not only have the last ten years been coupled with less success than they like, but also there's been a kind of certain homesickness there. And you know whether or not they it was reasonable or, or possible for them to redevelop Highbury, they've essentially uprooted the club. Once you uproot a club from its locality, it's arguable that it's kind of not the same club in many ways. It's interesting to me how much you uh, assign like this this uh, like you call, you use the word uprooting to describe the move from Highbury to Emirates, even though it was literally right next door. Well, I mean, it's not right next door. It's you know, it's a, kind of a mile away. But yeah, 
I think it I mean, it's it's the same neighborhood. It's the same, right? I mean, like, I've, I've never been under the impression that it was a dramatic move geographically. It was just more aesthetically. Well, sort of. I mean, yeah, aesthetically, I suppose, is what I'm getting at as well. I mean, I wasn't meaning to put sort of overt emphasis on the uprooting thing. You know, it, that, I, sorry, it may be a poor choice of words. But at the same time, you know, people's match day routines have changed to some extent, which is one important thing. And one thing that I certainly heard from... West Ham fans, you know, one of their biggest complaints was the change in match day routine. So even small changes there can make quite a big difference to fans. And also, you know, it's, I suppose it's also, you, you mentioned the aesthetic. It is about the fundamental bricks and mortar of the place you're in. It's not, um, it's not necessarily just about, I suppose, immediate kind of location, but also, you know, the actual sort of fundamental structure of the place you're in. You know, as you said, architecture can often affect the way people behave and in many ways dictates the nature of sort of atmosphere so if you completely demolish and then rebuild the architecture that does feel like a kind of spiritual uprooting if not necessarily like if you're not being moved you know 10-15 miles away it still feels like a big kind of a big difference I think. Yeah I think there's a lot to that and I mean just from my own personal experience in 2008 I went to a match at the Emirates to see my favorite team, Arsenal, play. And I don't think I sang or chanted at all because nobody around me was either. And it just didn't feel like an environment in which you did that because I was quite far from the field. The fans were mostly quiet. You know, it just didn't, it didn't feel like an environment where I would sing and chant. And, like, oh, I think, like, two weeks later, I went to a match at Craven Cottage and... I was watching, I think it was Wigan against Fulham, like really one of the, a, a very sad match in almost every regard, <laughs> except for the fact that the fans were great. And we were right on top of the of the field because Craven Cottage is a lovely little, little uh, stadium. And we sang Enchanted the whole time. And I mean, so I think that's a, an example where architecture largely dictates fan behavior. Uh, and I think... I, I don't know. I'm trying to I'm trying to place it within the broader the broader uh, trend of what's going on. And I mean, obviously, Stanford Bridge is just getting a renovation, uh, and so I'm not I'm not sure. You know, like obviously, I think Anfield has kept its its match day culture just fine through its renovation. Uh, will Chelsea keep theirs as well? Will they raise prices enough that people will feel like the the you know, genuine, hardworking fans won't be able to show up anymore. I mean, these are all kind of the questions that are yet to be yet to be answered. Yeah, I mean, I think the Anfield example is a good one in that Anfield, I, don't, I haven't heard many reports, if any, that Anfield feels drastically changed in terms of atmosphere. There are just more people there, which can kind of only be a good thing for atmosphere, I think. But uh, yeah, I think that's why redevelopment, as I said earlier, is probably the best way forward. Uh, and that's why, you know, I suspect that this is just my suspicion, but I suspect that the Stamford Bridge redevelopment will be less traumatic than a potential move away from Goodison Park for Everton. Because Goodison Park is another ground where, you know, the, uh, the pitch is very close to the seats and, you know, people, you know, it's kind of got famously quite aggressive kind of in-your-face atmosphere. But the reason that is, is, again, because people are so close to, you know, the players, so close to the action. And... Um, yeah, you know, I think that could make a big difference if Everton find themselves in some sort of Emirates light, you know, on, on some redeveloped land in Liverpool. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's obviously a big deal. And I think really another thing that architects and, uh, you know, club hierarchies as well need to think about is that uh, 
you know, when they redesign a new stadium, they're not necessarily, they shouldn't necessarily be seeking out, you know, extreme modernity. They should be thinking about what a fan might want from their match day experience. And actually, the way to do that, really, the way to get the best opinions on that is extensive fan consultation. Because basically, a lot of, um, a lot of modern grounds, they are designed through the eyes of an architect who's not necessarily a football fan. They are ultra-modern, you know, they have the best amenities, but ultra, you know, people don't go to football to experience some sort of theoretical ultra-modernity. People go to football to, you know, enjoy themselves, to socialise, to make noise, to chant, to watch the game. So, you know, as well as, I guess, the kind of, I don't know, as, as well as the architectural sort of, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is really, but as well as the architectural integrity of the place, they, they you know, architects and club hierarchies, when they plan these things, need to think about, you know, the, the needs of a fan, whether that means, you know, keeping the pitch close to the seats or, you know, whatever, they need to think about that above, you know, how many different stores they can get in, you know, for Pizza Hut or whatever, you know, it's, there's more to it than that. In kind of taking the, the, 30,000 foot view of this like at least in the US new stadiums and stadium renovations have largely been bad for fans. I mean, we've you, we've gotten nicer stadiums. I think it's certainly fair to say that like, you know, many baseball stadiums are a more pleasant experience now, but they're also distinctly unaffordable. Like I I when I was in high school, I would go to Yankee Stadium to see the Yankees on $5 ticket night. I'd sit in the bleachers for less than half the price of a movie, and it was great. And those tickets don't, they, they basically don't exist anymore. Yankee, The Yankees basically kept like two games a year that they do $5 ticket nights and they sell out instantly just to say they kept them. But basically, they're, they're no longer there. And now bleacher seats cost like 25 bucks. And if you want to buy any food or drinks or beers or anything, you will be hard-pressed to spend less than $50 for a night at the ballpark. And that's just like, I mean, that's stupidly expensive for a, you know, a sport that plays 162 games a year. NFL tickets, I think they average like roughly $80 to $100 uh, per ticket per game. And that's uh, that's just the average. You're likely to pay much more. And so I think... The, the broad stroke is that this has been bad for fans. Like, we have been incentivized to st- to not go to games anymore. Um, and so I, I just... But obviously, that's money the team is getting, right? So they make more money, and it's good for the owners and the clubs. So I don't really see any way to argue that these new stadium... De- that new stadiums or renovated stadiums are just... They're good for the team because the team gets more money, and they're bad for the fans because the fans have to pay more money to go to the stadiums. Yeah, I mean, you could obviously argue that in terms of, like, the Premier League, for instance, what's bad for the fans is, to some extent, bad for the team because, you know, if you have a terrible atmosphere that you're playing in, that can notoriously, you know, affect your performances. I mean, one thing I would say, I think it's interesting the point you made, and one thing I would say in terms in, in, in England and the Premier League and in sort of English football, there's also sort of an element of like class that comes into this because I suppose, you know, football is quite traditionally a working class sport. You know, that meant that it had to be affordable because obviously working class people don't tend to have, you know, thousands of pounds of disposable income that they can spend on football. And as, you know, stage has been renovated and this model of, you know, much more expensive tickets has kind of come in, it almost feels like part of the Premier League rebrand 
you know, the continuation of, I guess, what happened in the 90s and the 2000s, where football became a lot more expensive and a lot shinier and a lot more corporate. And it was meant to be this kind of like reaction to the dark days of 80s hooliganism. It almost feels like that has gone so far the other way that actually, you know, fans who are passionate, fans who are like local people, you know, fans who also potentially don't have loads and loads of money are essentially just being slowly edged out of the game potentially and you know this is kind of what I think is is worst about it is that I think there's this kind of assumption that if you have a stadium full of middle class fans paying high ticket prices that they'll you know they will basically be more amenable to the to the corporate model we discussed of you know the Disneyland model get in spend your money get out and that basically the whole kind of process of football just becomes another money spinning exercise which you know isn't actually at its fundamental core what it's meant to be about in England uh, and also is just kind of an ugly hijacking of the game really by people looking to make a hell of a lot of money from it while you know ruining it basically for the people who created it. It, it seems like there's, I mean, one of the, as I've read about the history of the Premier League, or, you know, of, of English football, I should say, it's always struck me that that fans were a part of the club or like or like perceived to be a part of the club in a way that that's never really been true in America, where fans certainly identify with teams in America, but they... Uh, I, I, at at their core, every fan knows they aren't a part of the team, right? I, that that seems to be a divide that is much blurrier over there. And this trend towards new stadiums, or at least higher ticket prices and more expensive everything, seems to be driving a wedge a little bit in there because, uh, I mean, well, part, mostly for obvious reasons, that if the fans are a part of the club, then why is the club trying so hard to get as much money out of the fans as they can, even though that's really like the fundamental business model of, you know, of soccer, of sports. So I think there's a lot of like a lot of basic contradictory things coming to a head. And it's going to be interesting to see kind of how that how that develops. Yeah, I mean, I think this comes back to the sort of top down, bottom up, bottom up uh, models of sport where in the UK, there's a you know a kind of bottom up. There has traditionally been a bottom up model, and certainly in um, American soccer, there seems to have been a sort of top down model where clubs are imposed on fans. Well, not imposed on fans, but you know, clubs. Are <laughs> Please get NYCFC <laughs> out of here. We don't want it anymore. Don't make me watch the Sounders anymore. No, but I mean, <laughs> um, I suppose what I mean is you know clubs have been put down as existing structures in America to make money. You know that they see the that people have seen the potential there. For successful businesses in the UK, you know, without wanting to sort of give like a rudimentary his- history lesson or ever to our listeners, but you know, in the UK, just because of the way it's worked, where clubs generally were formed, you know, out of I don't know a works team or some you know friends in a local area, and then they've kind of built up and up and up. I think fans do feel a lot more like they are a fundamental part of the fabric of the club, and actually, that when you boil a club down, they they are the club, and I think this is why. Um, I mean, I've got some examples to back this up from the kind of lower leagues as well. But but basically, you know, if you look back in kind of history, clubs like, you know, even the biggest clubs in England were all run by, you know, usually local grandees, you know, but also often local self-made men and businessmen and people like that. People who consider themselves to be fans because of their, you know, association with the locality or association with the kind of the community that that club represented. 
So in that, to that extent, actually, owners of football clubs in, in England and Britain generally have been fans you know, in, in, in history. And I think that's kind of a key difference because I don't think anyone would claim that in America that, like, say, Stan Kroenke is a fan of any of the clubs he owns, much like he isn't a fan of Arsenal. He's a, you know, he's a, in, in, in terms of Arsenal, he's a foreign investor who's basically bought that club to make money. Um, that is a very different model to, to the way that English football used to work in, say, you know, the 50s, 60s and 70s. So I think there is this fundamental blur between the fans and, you know, a club hierarchy in the UK. And furthermore, I mean, just to, to kind of argue this from a different perspective, but when you look at clubs that fold in the UK, um, you know, clubs that, or, or even clubs that just reach such just disastrous financial situations that need to be bailed out from, so, you know, AFC Wimbledon and Portsmouth would be good examples. Basically, the, when you boil a club down to its fundamental part, that part is the fans, because basically you can have as many um, overseas investors as you like get involved in the club and pump money into it, but if it all goes wrong and those overseas investors decide to sever ties, the people who bail that club out are the fans and the community to whom it's linked. So, you know, I suppose we've basically seen a model in lower league and non-league English football where clubs have you know, been owned by an irresponsible investor, they're, you know, financially have become, you know, untenable. And then they've been bought up by supporters trusts. You know, the local community has basically funded a bailout and made those clubs viable again and, you know, kept those clubs going. And I think that basically shows that when you cut away, you know, the nonsense of the hierarchies and the CEOs and, you know, the corporate people and the managers and the people who do the marketing and the advertising and all this shit that essentially a football club in England, in the UK, is the fans who support it. Because, you know, when it comes to the last, the absolute last ditch of that club, of that club's kind of existence, the people in that ditch are the fans. I understand everything you say, and I understand the historical arc you, you've drawn and all of, the, and all of that stuff. Like, and, I, and I think it makes sense, but it's also so foreign to me. Because... I would never say that a team is its fans, right? I would say because let's and I think this comes from a very like modernist view of what sports are nowadays and like perhaps extremely cynical view of it, which is as you as you alluded to earlier, the vast majority of club revenue nowadays comes from TV revenue. And TV revenue doesn't care how many fans are in the stands or really in the short term how many people are watching, which is like a really strange thing to say, but it's but it's almost undoubtedly true. Uh, and so what you end up with is this weird kind of like tree falling in the forest paradox where a club can ac- absolutely exist without fans now, or at least without very many of them for sure. And we see that all the time. And I, I think the difference here is that sports in the U.S. have this very protectionist architecture where teams can exist without making money individually because they share money. You know, we have all these revenue sharing you know, systems in place, whereas in the U.K., clubs are very much more on their own. So if fans don't show up and the club suffers financially, uh, as you say, the club, you know, they really do suffer and it's the fans who ultimately stick around and have to bail it out or whatever. So I do like I get it. But also it's just never the way I would describe a sports team. Yeah, I mean, I think I genuinely do think it's a, like it's obviously a massive, a massive cultural difference. But I suppose what I would say is that the Premier League and the success of the Premier League has largely been predicated on marketing to do with uh, atmosphere, fan base, passionate fans, stuff like that. 
the, the reason that they derive such huge television revenues is because they've sold the Premier League as a brand and part of that brand is the fact that you know, England is meant to have unique kind of fan culture. Whether or not that's true or not is highly debatable. I mean, I think anyone who isn't completely narrow-minded will know that you know, Serie A, La Liga, Bundesliga obviously have absolutely incredible fans. Um, and in many ways, their fan culture has outstripped ours probably for many of the reasons we're talking about. But I'd still argue that basically the whole package, the whole good that is being sold to people, the whole sort of, uh, I don't know, the whole commodity is predicated on those stadiums being full and full of people singing and being passionate and so on and so forth. I think that's probably why you'll see, you know, there's been a lot of reporting about how um, when Premier League ties are played like on Sky or overseas, often like the noise of the fans is turned up, stuff like that. You know, there's kind of an artificial attempt to almost uh, repair what's already the damage that's already been done to fan atmosphere. But basically, I suppose what I'm saying is, you actually, I don't think it is true that a club in the Premier League could be successful without fans. I don't think it's true that a club could be successful if there was not even the pretension of the atmosphere being fantastic. Uh, and I think you've seen that the footballing authorities in this country have basically recognised that in that they've made efforts to, they're now starting to make efforts to cut or like cap away ticket prices, uh, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll, they'll continue to sort of do that into home tickets and stuff like that. But basically, actually, I think there's been a, a recognition by the people who kind of, you know, who, who run the Premier League and who run English football that without the fans, that kind of brand and the thing that they're selling is not as valuable. And in fact, without any fans, in many ways, it's not valuable at all. Yeah, and I mean, I don't disagree with any of that, uh, especially with the way UK sports work where you don't have these, you know, quasi-monopolies operating that basically have their own, you know, siloed business model. And I think, like, the size of the country also, too, has a huge impact because you get have this away fan thing. You know, we don't we don't really have away fan culture because it's just not practical to travel to away matches most of the time in this country. It's not a day trip, you know? It's yeah. so I th- so there's you know there are a lot of elements that go into and and so that means that we don't have this away fan culture, which means you're basically only selling tickets to home fans and that all and because each team basically has a monopoly on their city, then, you know, for for the for the most part, then there's just there's no recourse basically for fans. There's no, there's nothing to do. There's no way to punish them. It's just, we're stuck in the cycle where there's still hope for you guys. Don't, don't, don't fuck this up. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And I'm like, the thing is you, as in, I agree with that sentiment. We should not fuck this up. And that's why I think fans, you know, need to continue to like, you know, there've been a lot of examples of collective action in, uh, in kind of British football fan culture. And that needs to continue because fans basically need to stick together to make sure that, the people who'd like to just purely monetize football can't fuck up the entire enjoyment of it for everybody. But um, yeah, you know, it is really interesting and I understand why uh, you would say like, you know, you were talking about how you, you sort of see it from a cynical perspective. It's healthy and necessary to be cynical about, you know, not just English football, but basically the treatment of like all sport everywhere. You know, if the people who think that they know so much about money are allowed to you know, entirely hijack the culture of sport, you know, on all kind of levels, they will inevitably fuck it up like they fuck everything up eventually. And, you know, I suppose all I'm saying is in the UK and in Britain, there are people there to pick up what remains and build something, you know, afresh out of that. Um, And in many ways, I hope those people 
kind of realised the, the value of that. Because, like, for instance, Portsmouth at the moment are uh, subject, I think, to interest from, uh, from some American billionaire. And I hope, I personally hope that the Portsmouth fans, you know, the supporters trust that currently own the club, uh, you know, see that the value of the fact that they've basically salvaged a community asset and aren't seduced by the idea of, you know, further Premier League seasons in the future. Because, again, you know, these, these things are ultimately community assets and they need to remain in the hands of the community. If, if, England, if English football, ran, you know, kind of worked on, like that and worked on, that, on, the, on the basis of that system... Uh, across the board, I think it would be, in many ways, a much better thing for the people who actually enjoy it, as opposed to the people who are just trying to make money from it. Yeah, not only is it just like some random American billionaire is interested in buying Portsmouth, but it's the Walt Disney chief, chief executive, Michael Eisner, who's apparently interested, which, uh, yeah. Which, uh, given, I, given what we've just been saying about the Walt Disney model... Yeah, I didn't even that wasn't intentional that's yeah that was completely accidental full circle we just drawn which seems like as good of a place to, as any to kind of wrap up this conversation uh instead of a manager fight this week would you like to give our brief champions league uh quarterfinal predictions um i'm just incredibly i mean yes is my answer first of all and uh, I'm, I, I'm incredibly optimistic for leicester i don't know i, I mean this isn't like I, you know i could obviously launch some ironical rant here that would you know either alienate or you know amuse leicester fans but basically i actually do think they have a good chance against atletico madrid i might be proved to be completely embarrassed in this sentiment but i just think you know considering the form that they've put together and the way that they play I think that they'll be in with a really good chance. I think Atletico often are used to, um, I guess, kind of sitting back against huge teams like Real Madrid and Barcelona in the Champions League. They'll have to go on the front foot with Leicester. And we all know that Leicester are a good counter-attacking side who've come back into form. So I think they've got a, a great chance. So my, I mean, you know, in some ways it feels a bit arbitrary to pick between like Bayern Munich and Real Madrid or Juventus and Barcelona, you know, I, to some extent, I don't care which of those clubs, mega clubs, go through. You know, they're not. It's not as interesting. But I suppose what interests me is that I would like to see. Uh, yeah, I'd like to see Leicester go through. I think they. Can I don't want to see Leicester have any success. I hate that. I hate that team. I hate everything about Leicester. I can't believe this is fucking happening again. Uh, but I have to say that, like, uh, as far as I can distance myself from my distaste for that team. Uh, I actually I have the complete opposite reaction to that matchup as you do. I think Leicester actually I think Atletico is the worst of the draws for Leicester because it's going to force Leicester out of their comfort zone. I think I think um Atletico is smart enough not to do what every other fucking team seems to do against Leicester, which is fall right into their trap. And I think Atletico is going to draw Leicester out a little bit and make them play a little bit more possession, a little bit more forward. I'm not saying Leicester's going to have like 70% possession or anything. I'm just saying that Atletico is going to make it easy for them. And once they draw them out a little bit, Atletico is a much better team, up and down. There's it's no like on paper, there's no contest, and I just think they're going to they're going to uh make it happen cuz I just really hope that's how it happens, I guess. It's, I, I just, I can't, I can't watch Leicester win the Champions League. I just, I can't I, do it. Yeah, in the other, I was going to say that in the other leg, I think I'd quite like to see Dortmund beat Monaco because I just, I just like Dortmund. They play the right way, don't they? We all like Dortmund. And then Leicester Dortmund, Leicester beat Dortmund. Leicester in the final, Jamie Vardy, 89th minute against Real Madrid, stabs home. 
and you're on your knees crying and I'm there. I've got a Jamie Vardy tattoo. I'm drinking a can. I've, I'm shouting at the top of my lungs. This is what I want to see. Are you, are you shouting at an Asian person? Because that, that would be how you really honor <laughs> Jamie Vardy. Um, although that would be a fitting way to celebrate Jamie Vardy winning the Champions League, uh, I will not be doing that for obvious reasons. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm with you on like the other matchups. Like, I, I can't be bothered to pick wh- who, you know, whether I would prefer Bayern Munich or Real Madrid to advance. Like, I mean, it's, I, I don't know. It's like trying to figure out which like racist grandfather in the Republican Party I'd rather see, you know, become Speaker of the House or some shit. <laughs> like, it's just I can't, I can't be bothered to pick. Uh, I, I mean, and for so I guess I would rather. I would prefer Juve to advance over Barcelona because while Juve certainly is a very large, very successful club and has had a lot of recent success, they still kind of feel newer and fresher than than Barcelona. Um, And also Barcelona should not still be in this tournament. That was complete horseshit dive. uh, And I'm still bitter about that. So, yeah, I don't really have any... Like, I guess we were going to... We were going to do some kind of analysis, but I don't know. That seems stupid. Let's just talk about who we would rather win, uh, which is what we did. Uh, I'm surprised you are so into Dortmund going over Monaco, though, because Monaco's new and, you know, they're 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 on a little bit of a run and, you know, they're, they're kind of breaking this big club mold and you just kind of were like, yeah, fuck them. Yeah, but if Monaco go through, I have to hear about how Kylian Mbappe is the new Thierry Henry for the next, like, month and a half, at least. Yeah. Uh, and I can't be asked. But Will, casual, he's also. Did you know he's also French? Yes, he's also French <laughs> and and a black man, and hence we can arbitrarily say that he is the new Thierry Henry, despite having no clear evidence to that fact. At, at the risk of of creating a whole new conversation here, did you happen to notice that like uh, after Lukaku scored what like two goals against Leicester uh, against Leicester City over the weekend when they won four two? And uh, he was, like, one of the best players on the field. BBC Sport did, like, this roundtable discussion where they asked, like, why Lukaku isn't working harder for his club. Like, what the fuck was that bullshit? And then, like, it just reminded me of that because, like, it seems, like, I don't know why that reminded me of it. I think it had something to do with you saying that, or, like, arbitrary notions relating to Mbappe being a French black man. And I was just thinking, like, speaking of arbitrary conclusions people reached about, you know, yeah. uh, a striker, because possibly because he's black. Like, it just seems so random to me. Um, yeah, I mean, I obviously, obviously, I don't know what their thought process was specifically, but it has to be said that, like, generally, um, the accusations of, like, laziness and people not working hard enough I would say are generally far more likely to be leveled at black players than they are white players. It's kind of it's quite it's quite a common conclusion I think people have come to in uh, English football that, that this is for some reason the stereotype that's used, you know, for for, for black players. I mean, it's very. I mean, I, I'm actually trying to rack my brains to think of a time that I've heard a white player heard of a white player being accused of either of those things. It's it's well, very it- very rare. And even and even more into like I watched the video and the two of course white. Uh, analysts i think they were both former players uh, called lukaku alternatively a tiger and a beast and i was trying to remember the last time i heard someone refer to a white player as being a beast or relating them to a jungle animal of some kind and i'm sure this is all like 
you know, completely latent in terms of what, you know, these guys, the, the analysts' racial attitudes. Like, I'm not saying that they're overt racist or anything, but we definitely have a problem in soccer and sport generally. I've written about how this happens in the NFL, too, on many occasions. Uh, we have a problem in sport of using specific words to describe players purely based on what race they are and almost entirely adhering to these molds. Uh, and I think it's it's really kind of disturbing how 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 prevalent this is and how easily people set in their, get set in their ways, and then how difficult it is to have honest conversations about like the fact that we do. Yeah, this. I mean, obviously, I think the thing is, obviously, a lot of sport writing and football writing relies on stereotype and cliche. Anyway, that's how they do it, and I think you know that's how sport does it. Basically, that's how we describe sport in such cliche terms. And I think, unfortunately, that for a lot of people, that just means relying on stereotypes that go beyond sport and are potentially like racial or ethnic. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, uh, I think that we'll about do it for this week, unless you have anything else uh, that you would like to talk about. Oh, I could I could plug some of my articles, couldn't I? Yeah, you could. You should do uh, it. Uh, I'm writing about... Um, I'm actually writing about the long shared history between Leicester and Atletico... Uh, which is really interesting. Uh, turns out, basically, all the t- any time that Leicester play European football, they end up playing Atletico. They did it in the 1961 European Cup Winners' Cup. They did it in the 97-98 UEFA Cup. And then they had one cup competition, I think the UEFA Cup again, where they didn't draw Atletico. And now they've got them again. So basically, they have this like basically quite improbable uh, European relationship, uh, just in terms of you wouldn't expect mathematically a team to to pick, you know, to be drawn with with Atletico so many times. I wonder what the actual math- mathematics of it are. Maybe I'll ask a mathematician. But anyway, uh, there's that. And then also I did The Cult this week, our series The Cult, on a, on a horse called Red Rum. So if you want to read about a horse, go to that. Excellent. I do want to read about a horse. I will read about your horse. Uh, <laughs> it is your horse, right? Yeah, no, yeah. I, uh, he, he's been put out to pasture in my back garden. <laughs> That's terrible. Uh, <laughs> I have not, uh, I guess the next thing I'm going to write will probably come out on Thursday and it's going to be about how fans looking to travel to the, speaking of, you know, uh, sporting events and fans kind of getting, uh, boxed out of them. Uh, fans are having a lot of trouble finding hotels in the middle of rural South Korea for the 2018 Winter Olympics, which, uh, yeah, uh, not exactly a surprise, but uh, it's fans are definitely having trouble finding somewhere to stay for the Winter Olympics. So look forward to another wonderful sporting atmosphere in the, for the 2018 yeah, Winter Olympics. I mean, damn it, rural South Korea. Yes, exactly. Damn it, rural South Korea. Let's end it on those words exactly. <laughs> uh, and you said you weren't going to shout at any Asians. <laughs> uh <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Uh, as always, thank you for listening. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Chips Podcast. You can email us chips at viceports.com. Uh, you can, of course, follow each of us on Twitter. Uh, uh, I don't feel like spelling out those handles. That'll take forever. Just like, <laughs> just follow us at Chips Podcast, and then it's in the bios uh, there. And. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. Enjoy the Champions League games. Goodbye now.